Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Push to Talk. We're here with our special guest this week, Carneros. Say hey, Carneros. Thank you. It's good to be here. Hey, and as always, we have the some of the usual crew that comes in and out. Uh, Caleb's here with us. Hey, guys. With his super secret marketing, e-marketing whiteboard behind him. So if you can figure out what he's doing, you can, you know, play the market against him. And we have Urandis down below, ever-present. Just up. This is what we got. Just up. <laughs> so, hey, so um, hello to everybody out there. And we are going to talk about a couple things today. Um, uh, primarily, the big thing that we're going to talk about uh, to start with here is, uh, is going to be some uh, fun gaming news uh, in the world of MMOs. And, uh, you know, Carnivorous is here and he's got a lot of history. In them, and he's gonna. We're gonna share some stories and 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 talk about some interesting stuff. Yeah, the uh, when when they talked to me about coming on to do this, it was we were talking about the the history and future of MMO games, and uh, uh, I started thinking about the subject, and I thought, oh, in order to explain the context of building early MMO games, I should probably explain that we were on dial-up network. We didn't really, we didn't just directly connect to the internet back then, for, uh, and, uh, you know, as as Ethernet or something and, and make these games. And, oh, if I'm going to explain that, I should explain we didn't have this or we didn't have that or, oh, I should back up a little bit, you know, the, the early days and I should explain kind of how how EA started too, and Apple and well, there's Atari before that and kind of roll back a bit because there's some context on, on all of it and a theme that, that weaves through. So it ended up, it's, I've got a bunch of material prepared to present to you a few show and tell things. Some of them I kick myself now because I, I realize they're at my office, but I will show you a couple of few cool things about the past and then bring you, you know, you know about the present and then we can talk a little bit about what's going on in the future. Every now and then you'll see some old things come back around again in a funny way. Uh, but uh, do we want to jump right into that or talk about Eve News first or anything like that? I don't know. What do you want to do? I'll leave it up to Caleb to decide. Do we do Eve News well, first? I think, I think uh, this proves my point because the, the reason that I wanted us to do something like this is because I know that Conneros is just... And, and database of knowledge about MMOs and Eve and Eve history and all of that stuff. So you can tell that, that down editing him is going to be the huge problem, right? Um, but I do think that we should do the, the short uh, Eve news stuff and a little bit of uh, the other topics. And then we just jump straight into Carnero's story time where he's going to take us all the way back. I don't know if he's going to take us all the way back to uh, MUDs, uh, even though Arendus is in chat, but we can see where we where we start off. <laughs> so let's go on and uh, hit the MER first. Alrighty, well let's run the our new our new little bumper line. So we're gonna go here. Go for news. Well, I don't know if uh, anyone noticed, but of course uh, it looks pretty much like it's uh, been for the last six months or so. It's basically uh, uh, a leaderboard for Delve. But I think one of the uh, important things about this uh, month's MER is that 
uh, it also released some very, very important uh, data that we have been asking for for a long time. Uh, we are now finally getting market history all the way back to 2003-04. So anyone that wants to actually take a chance and download the 16 gigabyte file, Jeez. they can now look at all the data and they can burn their uh, spreadsheet programs and destroy their own personal computers. Do you think there's any way to split that up? <laughs> you would have hoped that he had done something like that, given it uh, like uh, each file for each year. But nope, we just got one big text file and you can have fun with it. This is basically like the JSTOR leak. It's like, have fun. Here you go, guys. So, someone will end up splitting up. They have to. That's huge. Yeah, it's uh, the, the nerds that's already digging into it. They've already started complaining that it's like impossible to load all those uh, data points. So Caleb, if you want some free uh, merit points, all you have to do is just go in and separate everything year by year. Yeah, but uh, I am leaving that to uh, more ASPII types. Uh, I know that ProBag is uh, already crunching and biting into it, uh, and pretty much all the normal people, I know that Euronica is going to take a look at it, uh, Adam for Eve has already uh, started working with it and figuring out how to put it into uh, his website. So. I would say a month or two from now, you might actually have some usable data. I'd like to point out that only EVE Online could have released all their market data back to the beginning. Uh, I don't know of hmm. any other significantly old MMO that could possibly have even done that. So certainly EverQuest or EverQuest 2 couldn't possibly have gathered it all and dumped it uh, out like that. It is yes, quite amazing that they keep records all the way back to, say, the beginning. Like, that's craziness. Yeah, it's, it's kind of what we uh, we touched upon some of these things in the last episode when we had the the, the devs uh, from CGP talking about the database and the hardware. And they also uh, admitted that they actually pretty much have each uh, release of EVE uh, on store somewhere. So even things like the mythical uh, walking in station stuff is actually in the CCP offices. They are keeping track of everything and nothing is thrown away. So this is just an amazing day that I, I asked for this data back in 09 directly from Dr. Aog and he actually promised to see if it was possible. Uh, and now finally we get it. Almost a decade later, you finally get it. Yeah, I do find that like, I get, there are probably other games that could probably release like the amount of data that they had, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as like complex because everything in Eve is intricately entwined. You know, if you go to something like Warcraft, you know, you have raid items, which I'm sure probably I don't know, I've never played Warcraft, but I wouldn't see the markets being as intertwined with basic materials to upgraded tech two materials to even modules and other shit. But And how would you uh, release it? By server? Uh, because it's not all one coherent yeah, thing like too. it is in EVE. And that too. It's EVE solves on one server. Which is yeah. Really and Noisy's pointing out, he says, it's the funky data. It's not really the raw data. And you're right, it's a little wrapped up. But uh, from what I've heard is it might be a little messed up too. So we'll see. And I want to give a shout out to Shrar for the uh, $3.33 donation. Thank you, Shrar. Is greatly appreciated now that we have monthly expenses to run our uh, Zoom conference. So that's nice. Thank you very much. And shout out to Milk because I haven't seen him forever. It's nice to see you around, Milk and Cookies. All right, carry on. Well, this this just proves the the the, the point that 
the rest of the show is going to be about. Like, there is a lot of games out there, but there is just nothing that does anything remotely like CCP and Eve. It's it's so unique that you can't even uh, put it in the same category. It's also why when you talk to other gamers, when you start telling them that you're an Eve player, they instantly put you in the weird categories. Like, okay, it's like I think it was zero punctuation that said that. Uh, Eve players are to nerds what nerds are to real people. It's like it's just a different category, right? It, it's it's so unique and it's got so many things that is totally unfamiliar in any other game. And releasing this data <clears> is just another example of that. So I do think that it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this. Also because this is the players that are going to dig into it. It's going to be the players that are creating all the content from this data set. And it will eventually start hitting the ones we had the show before that all the academics that are going to try and pick it apart and figure out what they can conclude from these data points, right? So I'm looking forward to the next many months and uh, following up on this. Oh yeah, it's, you just mentioned academics. Like I just, that just realized to me, like there's probably some graduate student right now who is looking at this and saying, I know what I can base my thesis off of. Exactly, and, and with some luck and uh, kismet maybe, uh, we could get one of the big uh, financial guys from real life to come and look at this and come on the show and comment on it. I don't know how many out there actually know, but uh, Yanis Varoufakis, uh, the former uh, head of finance from the Greek government, uh, he is actually, uh, he's historically looked at, uh, at EVE data and worked on it. So EVE markets are a unique thing in, in the gaming uh, industry. And when it comes to things like virtual uh, currency uh, or virtual uh, economies, it is beyond anything comparable. Nothing else has what you have. So what you're saying is that, no, that was good for me. Yeah, we can, uh, we can see if we can ping him and get him on the show uh, a few months from now and see if he's actually uh, looked at the data. Yeah, thank you, Duncan, that's what I was gonna say. You're saying that a failing economy bases its stuff off of Eve. <laughs> and it, a little bit of uh, an interesting fact that uh, some of the financially inclined might uh, want to look at is there's a huge difference between uh, pre-2009, 2010 and post because you came from an extreme growth market where there was new players coming into the game all the time. So you had the equivalent of uh, uh, population growth demographics where you have uh, the, uh, the pyramid shape uh, demographics where your population is growing. But now we are actually seeing more like uh, a Japanese demographics where the, the, the number of players is declining. So you, you have a totally new uh, economic uh, normal in the game. And it's going to be interesting to see if the data can actually show something of, of, of that kind. Now, what do you mean by like a more Japanese? Do you mean like the the amount of wealth, the mean average of wealth, is higher than what it was when the player base was larger? No, it's it's uh, the way that your economy works when your population is growing. You can actually uh, you, you can you can speculate on incoming uh, money in the future. You can't do that when your population is declining because then you're going to get less money coming in or less uh, GDP coming in. So it's a totally different scenario and. 
the, the nation that's famous for this is the Japanese uh, nation because they were the first to get uh, a, a dwindling uh, population. Gotcha. But to shift this to uh, the guest of honor, Carneros, uh, I think you should uh, uh, kick it off with uh, the very early days. And I'd just like to start it out with one of the things that I was thinking about is the fact that way back, the two major types of games online were really uh, the, the shooters, of course, and, and then the MMOs. But the, the whole MMO uh, segment of players were usually the the very hardcore role players from pen and paper and of course uh or also the the huge fans of uh, the adventure game series right so so the the people that came into eve early is very different from maybe what we have today and i think you can enlighten us about the early days on dialogues and who was playing what and what was the first groundbreaking games well yeah I'll, uh, there's a lot of difference between people coming into the games today uh people people coming into the games today grew up with games they they had them from their very earliest memories they uh yeah back there was a time before uh electronic games and uh um you know some of us can remember when all the televisions were still black and white and when color televisions came and how exciting that was and when your family got to have a color TV. And I mean, the world's changed a lot. I don't want to go back that far though, but I do actually kind of want to go back to um, the homebrew computer club in, uh, in uh, just South of San Francisco, California. First it started meeting in someone's garage um, in a suburb of San Francisco. In those days, computers were not rare but they were usually owned by governments, large businesses, um, universities, you know, hospitals, things like that. They, not very many people had a computer at home. They were rare for personal use. Uh, and a lot of the ones that were in personal use were built, um, were built from kits or built without kits by people who knew what they were doing. In those days, you couldn't take a computer class in school. You took electrical engineering classes, which was the closest thing they had. And you, um, it, uh, in those days, you did not um, have internet at home. You didn't even, I mean, you barely had dial-up at home uh, in those days. That came a little bit later. Anyway, if you wanted, this was before World Wide Web, before Google, if you wanted to know about something, you got a book or you went to school, you know, you went to a library or you called someone you knew on the phone or you drove to their house and visited them and asked them questions. Or you what, what formed up to make that easier were these computer clubs. Uh, and then computer user groups kind of grew out of that. And people would go to monthly meetings or weekly meetings or, or main monthly meetings and then a little side meeting. And they would talk to each other and learn more about computers and games was part of that. Uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met each other at Homebrew Computer Club. Um, before they started Apple together, they worked at Atari together. So they were aware of games, games was part of it. 
Uh, James was woven into the picture from an early date. Then they formed Apple and they, they actually, they brought their Apple One computer prototype to a meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club. Um, in those days, it had moved from garages and people's homes to meeting at Slack, the Stanford Linear Accelerator uh, facility. I can't remember what it was, how it was, what it was called. So they they met in a conference in a in a presentation room there, and they showed it to people, and people started putting orders in. Um, uh, that's the, these were early days back then. So roll forward a little bit further. EA, is, I'm sorry, um, Apple is building Apple II's, is starting to grow, is doing well. Steve Jobs hires a guy named Trip Hawkins to come in and be um, the marketing guy for the Apple II's. Trip had, um, Trip was a really interesting guy. He, he was, he had a couple characteristics in common with Steve. Um, he was exceptionally smart and kind of, um, uh, charismatic uh, and uh, uh, entrepreneurial and thought outside the box in a lot of ways. He did a degree at Harvard that he uh, created for himself in a day when you could you could make up your own degree, but it was really really rare. And he made up a, a, a degree in game theory, and Steve thought that was cool, and hired him uh, at, at uh, Apple to launch the Apple II. Scroll forward a few years, that's successful. Apple's business is migrating from Apple II to Macintosh. The, the powerful, well-connected guys inside Apple are like switching over to the Mac group. They wanna be involved with this hot new thing. That's not what Trip wanted to do. He, um, he invented something new and um, and it came to be called a spinoff. He, he went to Apple management and said, I wanna start a new company, but I wanna do it with your blessing and your participation and your support and make sure you own some stock in it. Um, and it will be, it will spread some of Apple culture to a new corporation in the Silicon Valley area. And he started Electronic Arts. It was the first spinoff of Apple. That's become a big tradition since then, but that was one of the first ways in which he he changed the world around. I think there's uh, a, a little bit of a point also to add that at the same time, this is, if I'm not remembering uh, wrong, I think this is when the, the people were not online, but they had already started getting into gaming because you had the Commodore thing developing on the side of this. So the kids were on their Commodores and not being able to go online. So when you were, say, swapping games, which later became piracy, you actually had to do it physically, right? Uh, and, and you get all these developments uh, parallel to the online and the bigger, uh, what becomes the PC in the end, right? So so you get these parallel tracks. And, and it's funny that just about when, when we reached the peak with the last um, Commodore Amiga, that's when the internet started opening up and you had actually moved into was it 1600 or 3200 bow modems that were pretty much publicly available? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And these, at this time in, in life, I'm a little bit younger than Steve Jobs and Trip Hawkins, and I'm playing on my friend's uh, uh, Apple II because he had a cool one, and, and we would we would play games together, but it would be single player games, and we'd hots uh, we take turns sitting in the seat and playing that kind of thing. We did, uh, there were some multiplayer games in those days, but they were rare. And they were usually done at, they were usually at things like universities um, and things where they had networked computers and only the computer geeks knew about them and played them. They were kind of like secret things and upper management at the university usually didn't even know it was sitting on their computers. And you're still, at this point, we're still talking about like probably 79 to 83, I think, right? Yeah, um, something like that uh 70s uh i was still in high school in the 70s uh and then let's see yeah Ooh, world it's you get fuzzy in parts of it there D, &D yeah. is getting big um i'm playing D, &D. uh it's, it's an exciting um people are getting home computers and learning things to do with it first piece of software we got for our computer at home. We actually, the, the software was typed out in a printed magazine and we had to go type it in onto our own media and put it into our computer. It was like old school days. This is before floppies. And, I mean, it was like, anyway, things get better. I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in those days though. I want to pull up a little bit farther forward. Um, uh, consoles come out. And Nintendo releases the Famicom. Um, it uh, Atari has consoles out, um, and they start to be multiplayer, where you sit next to each other with controllers on the same unit. It's not networked multiplayer; it's local multiplayer. Um, not very many games these days do split-screen local multiplayer, and uh, that's a shame. I'd like to say because yeah, I think there's a there's a demand for it. It's not easy to do. The um, the UI is is harder to do in modern games, but it's worth doing. And uh, it's a lot more viscerally satisfying in some ways. I mean, you can do it right there. And Wasn't Golden Eye the first to actually popularize that? No, sir. I don't think so. I think it was one of the Mario Kart games or one of the Sonic games. I, I you know. I my mind goes back to Bomberman and some Bomber some Man. older oh, stuff. Oh, Bomberman! Oh, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Twenty six hundred. The tank one sitting next to one another. I'll mention Hudson Soft for a second. Um, there are these two brothers that lived on the island of Hokkaido in northern Japan, um, outside of Sapporo, uh, in the middle of nowhere, and they lived next to a train track. Um, and they loved computers and photographs and cameras and trains. Um, and they had this crazy idea to take a whole bunch of pictures of this one. They had one train on the whole island of Hokkaido and went by their house and they took pictures of it. And after the Sapporo Olympics of like 72 or something, they shut down the train and decommissioned it. And these two brothers grow up and they move to, they open a little shop in downtown Sapporo selling photographs of the train to tourists. That's now gone, pretty photographs. 
I don't know how, I don't know what kind of crack you have to be on to think that's going to make money and you're going to be able to make enough money to, you know, pay for ramen. Sapporo is a famous town for the best ramen in Japan. Anyway, but they were on that kind of crack and they played games and they would, um, and they started, um, and they love computers and they started selling computer software in little baggies on a peg in their photograph shop next to the photographs. Anyway, and they started learning how to make things together to, cause you, you, little games and little things. And the Nintendo Famicom came out and they went to Nintendo. They had the balls to go to Nintendo and say, we want to put out a game on your Famicom. We want to make a game for it. And Nintendo said, what? You went to what? They had never even thought of third-party games for their platform. They assumed we would make all the games because who else is going to make them? These two kids worked out and they built one. I think the first one that actually shipped was called Load Runner in English. Um, on the Nintendo, it was the first third-party thing. Now all of them do that, of course. But, you know, these young entrepreneurs thinking outside the box is how things got done. And in America in those days, you know, people, the homebrew computer club guys, in addition to talking about clubs and user groups, were passing, um, you know, floppy disks back and forth to each other, obviously mostly pirated and stuff, and telling people where to go to get things. And, and the local shop owners would come down there too and make presentations and tell people we're gonna have this in our store next. And anyway, I joined, I was the leader of one of the largest, um, I, was, I was on staff at one of the largest computer user groups called, um, um, uh, holy crap, BMUG, Berkeley Macintosh User Group, it stood for initially when it was Max, and it was just called BMUG. And then I was the CEO of the president of the largest Next computer user group called Bang, Bay Area Next Group. Um, and, you know, we had Steve come and present at our user groups and stuff in those days. And I, I was involved with community building before there were things like web or websites or you know, online games or any of this. And that social networks before all that. Before Usenet was a big thing. <laughs> you know, Usenet was very popular right then. You would get news groups and you, so you would connect with your ISP and you'd have to be in, on dial-up and you'd have to tell them which use news groups you wanted carefully because you didn't want the whole flow because that would keep the phone busy for hours. And people were just getting to the point where they were saying, let's put a second line into the house for our phone so that we could have the modem connected to the computer instead of every time your mom wants to make a phone call or your sister or something that they pick it up and break your connection. And it was horrible. And then you get the first uh, freemium model, right? With the... Uh internet and uh, telecompanies uh, doing flat rates just a little bit later than that. But it comes around eventually uh, that you can actually get flat rate on, on your internet. Well, well, uh, well, there's a couple things going on. Uh, first, you're doing dial-up internet in those days. And as games get a little bit farther and they start to make the first online games that are not just you have to be local on the network at the university to play it, but you could actually pay to play it in some way. Those couldn't just be run over the internet in those days because the internet had regulations and rules. And one of them was nothing purely commercial. 
So what they would do is they would make those games and run them over CompuServe or America Online or Genie, if you remember Genie. Ugh. These are really old names that uh, <laughs> touch weird parts of your brain for old people. The prodigy. No. I'm, I'm glad he prodigy, said brain. Yes. Prodigy, oh my God. MechWarrior. So those, and, and because you had to do it like that, they would charge you by the hour. And it would you would run up massive bills sometimes, and you would just shake after you open them. You realize that you just spent hundreds of dollars that month, and you owned it to the phone company. And otherwise, you were anyways hard to talk about. Oh, oh, I've got a better one for you than that, Garnet. Go ahead, Earth. Imagine being imagine being ten years younger and dreading when the phone bill came every month because your dad was going to go nuts. Oh, I can I can top that one because my dad actually did go nuts and he cut <laughs> my cable to my computer because it was a, a crazy phone bill. And, oh, no. and the really funny part was that, as you guys all remember, you did the connecting of uh, the phone to your modem and then you had the outlet from the modem mm -hmm. out to your actual phone and he cut the wrong line. So I was kind of laughing at him when he was raging at me. Well, not only that. Uh, in the U.S., you had all the different phone exchanges, right? So you had long distance, you had like inner exchange costs, you had all kinds of weird phone bill things going on too. It was great when you had an ISP, an internet service provider that had local phone numbers in your area. So you didn't have to also pay a long distance or toll services. Yeah. Yeah, it was also well, I, why the Americans had a head start because you were the first to actually have free local uh, where that actually... Uh, became a benefit because no one else in the world had anything remotely like flat rate. So I remember the Americans being way ahead when it comes to things like this. They were the ones running all the, the popular uh, bulletin board systems and, and all of that. They were points on the first veto mail and, and all these things. It was America first. All right, let me skip ahead so a little I'm, bit. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm a bit younger than the rest of y'all. I, I remember 10-year-old me trying to impersonate my dad on the phone with the phone company trying to sign us up for internet. Nice. <laughs> they asked me for a credit card <laughs> or something, and I just made something up. <laughs> I, I just remember my dad uh, opening the phone bill. There's a letter saying someone was impersonating you on the phone, and they weren't sure who it was. Dear Lord. All right. <laughs> So, so if um, you're trying to make this competition about who's younger on this show, I suggest you stop now. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So Electronic Arts, mind you, they start up and they're they're not they're making game they're making consumer software for for home computer enthusiasts basically uh, and people they're making he's just sold all, all these Apple IIs in. Macs are just starting to come in and he's thinking I'll make software for these guys and he's making stuff and some of it, most of its productivity at first, uh, um, art, an art tool was popular and various things and they start making games also and then eventually EA focuses uh, in, entirely on just um, games. Well, eventually, so electronic eventually they become EA because they start off as ECA. Oh, that's right. You remember yeah. that logo? And yeah. for anybody who's only dealt with like the later years of EA, early EA was an amazing, amazing yes. producer of content. I mean, just Adventure Construction Set, Archon. You're talking yes. literally some of the best, most groundbreaking games ever came out of these guys. Involved Construction Set, and, yeah. Yeah, and just like 
some days I look back on that and I go, if you guys could see what you became, you'd strangle yourself. <laughs> what, what happened to all that? There was there were some pretty badass games back then. Yep. You either die as a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Wow. All right, Batman. Uh-huh. Fucking dumb. That EA. And then in those days, I mean, uh, that a little bit farther than uh, the Nintendo and the Genesis are, are the Nintendo and the Sega Master System maybe are are still the leaders. It's not quite to Super Nintendo and, and Genesis yet. I'm trying to remember exactly. Uh, and uh, EA is trying to build games for them, and they're they're not uh, they're negotiating, and it's not. They're not giving them a good price. And EA's engineers find a way to crack the security so that they can build a game to release on the system whether they want to approve it or not. And the law is not caught up yet with whether or not they can, they're allowed to actually release software for someone else's proprietary console. You remember this horrendous? And they used the crack as uh, they never actually shipped software based on the crack, but they demonstrated it for first party and used it for leverage to negotiate a better rate. And they said, if you don't give us a better rate, we're going to release it without you and you're not going to get any royalties from our games. And it was, uh, was cr- and so they're, they're building at that level and uh, doing some stuff and making a lot of money and doing growing. And that's about when Trip Hawkins says, you know, this is not fair that these people control this. We need a shared console that everyone controls, that the whole, all the game industry that doesn't compete with the game producers, that's a fair level playing field. So he invents the 3DO idea and starts a 3DO company as a spinoff of EA, which was a spinoff of Apple. So um, 3DO um, was the was sort of the first console that was going to be um, that the console producer wasn't going to make games and and anybody could do it and it was a three dollar license fee to put a game out and blah blah blah. Um, very cool. It's 32 bit. Um, it's a little little nicer than what Super Nintendo and Genesis had. So I go to interview at. Um, 3DO in its early days, and they're still in an office at Electronic Arts. They hadn't yet moved out on their own, and it was super cool, and I loved it. And I, I'm in those days. I'm a, I'm a computer journalist. I'm writing for computer magazines and running user groups, and I'm, I'm not. I have no involvement with games yet, except I like to play them. Um, and 3DO hired me in 1993 to come in. Um, uh, partly because of my user, basically because of my user group experience. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. I was industry relations and developer relations and marketing in those days. And I helped launch the console in 93. 3DO, by the way, was the first company to ever go public on the NASDAQ stock exchange without a single dollar of revenue ever booked to the company in May of 93. Crazy. Thing. Those were crazy days. People were people were smoking crack. That's crazy. Um, so we'll we'll go we'll go forward a little bit more. Um, I'm working in uh, I'm working in marketing and production at the same time. 
Um, 3DO has invented and designed their follow-up, their, basically their 3DO2 system, which had a code name M2. And they're starting to build the first round of games to get ready for the M2 console when it's eventually going to come out and replace the 3DO console. Um, and I'm an associate producer on a game called M2 Football. And that's all it's called because it's going to be our first football game. It's going to be on the M2 platform. We didn't have a name yet. Um, and we, this one we're going to build outside of house. So we hire a, a company called Condor and based in Redwood City. You, some of you are probably, old timers are probably giggling already and you know where this is going. So we Condor in those days was known for making sports games uh, for people. This is, that was their main business. But they have some other projects going on with some other customers. And in the back, um, we go over there one day and they've got this cool game in development next to ours and it looks so good. So good. And we're so jealous. Um, and and uh, we go back to upper management at 3DO and we say, you should go talk to these guys. I don't know if they're for sale or what. I don't know what's going on, but they've got a hot game that they're working on. Three-quarter overhead view, fantasy setting. You're walking around hacking and slashing at things with swords. you got some magic. It's just so compelling. It looks really, really cool. Um, we, uh, they don't listen to us right away, but after a couple months, they tell the biz dev guy to pick up the phone and call them. And the guy goes, you know, we are interested in an, uh, an acquisition actually, but we're talking to another company and we're a little too far down the road with them. If this falls apart, we'll, we'll call you next. But if it doesn't, the honorable thing for us to do is stick with the first deal. We go, okay. So the first deal closes, um, Blizzard buys Condor and renames them as Blizzard North, and the game um, eventually ships as Diablo, which, by the way, Diablo is enjoying their 20th anniversary uh, this year. Anyway, um, one of the things they had to do to finish Diablo was close all their other projects and cancel them, so we didn't even get to finish M2 Football. And then the M2 platform didn't launch anyway, so whatever. But... That set us up a little bit because a few months later, 94, I'm going to say this is early 95, um, um, the same producer I was working with on M2 Football, Roland Kippenhaut, had a long story, long EA, early EA producer and stuff. He, um, he says, you can try this beta alpha with me and it's called Meridian 59. And it's like, it's like a mud, a multi-user dungeon, but it's 3D. And you, you got to check it out. It's really, really cool. So we all start playing it. And we go, again, we go to upper management and say, okay, remember the last time when you guys fucked up and you didn't listen to us and do anything about it? This time you should listen to us. And they said, okay, who is it? And they called him immediately. And, and it was called Archetype Interactive. And they were kind of... They weren't particularly based anywhere. They were kind of distributed a little bit. A couple guys were in Texas. A couple guys were in California. We it was we um, we bought them and invited them all in, and they uh, they moved to California and f finished Meridian Fifty Nine and launched it and and three D O published. It. Um, and there were a couple other things out before Meridian Fifty Nine, 
but they were either 2D or they were just like ASCII art or they were text-based and or MUDs, multi-user dungeon and mushes. But I, there, I, I can never really determine the difference between a MUD or a mush. Uh, and I can't even remember what the SH stood for. Simulated hole or simulated um, hell. Okay. I think but, they uh, shared hallucination. Shared hallucination was also one of the accepted ones. Yeah. Um, it, 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 mush was a, there was mush and there was muse. Muse was simulated experience or yeah. uh, shared experience. Yeah. And this is the entry for uh, all the uh, pen and paper players, right? Into the computer scene, which is for a lot of people. That's the important point, right? Because that ends up becoming the entire segment that is well, uh, the MMO scene. The D&D fans in those days and stuff were playing single player RPGs. They were playing uh, Bard's Tale. A Bard's Tale. Oh, yeah. And Might and Magic. Shadows of Eusebius. They were playing various. Let's not forget Zork. Yep, Zork. I gotta say, I had to undo my mic. We ran Do Mush back in the day, and uh, I remember you could only have fifty concurrent users on Muds and Mushes. And uh, one of the guys rewrote the code, took us up to seventy-five. It was like a big deal. I think it it's interesting to uh, to mention that when we were not online yet, I think the majority of nerds would be playing things like adventure games and uh, RPGs on their respective consoles, whether that was the Amiga or you get the Japanese RPGs coming out on some of the early consoles. So that was really what we were doing, right? It's also why these games were the ones to first kind of hit the, the online market, right? So so you get these RPG-based games and then you get uh, uh, things like uh, actual MMOs later, right? I, I remember, I wish I brought the box home with you, with me because uh, it's sitting at my desk at work, but I was going to hold up my Meridian 59 box. When we sat down to, well, when we sat down to prepare to sell it into the channel, in those days, you sold games um, in boxes at retail stores. There's no digital distribution. You sold them in a box. And in order to put them in the box and sell them into the chains that sold games, those days that the, the at this point now it's there are three big chains called the three sisters in America, uh, Software Etc., Babbage's, and GameStop, and later they all combined and stuff. But they had they had similarities in that you couldn't sell them into the computer. They couldn't put a listing in the computer system for them and sell it without a genre. They needed a category for it, and we didn't have a category for this. We didn't know what what this was. So we came up with and put it on the front of the box, the first 3D inter um, the first 3D interactive multi-user dungeon. Because that was the closest thing we could come up with that might make sense. The term MMORPG didn't come out until Ultima, which was a year later in 1996. This was 95 that this came out. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we it, we were we had big debates about what to charge for it because we wanted to charge a, for the box. We wanted to charge a little bit every month to cover the team staying on the on the project and continuing to develop content for it. Because up until now, you made a, your team made a, a game 
and then they went and made a different game. And they didn't keep, you didn't keep a team to keep working on a game. Sometimes it was hard to go fix a bug in it because the team that made the first game has split up now and gone off to do other stuff. So it, we would, um, we wanted to keep this team on this game and keep making content for it. So we needed a subscription. But at the same time, we're feeling that, well, people are paying a subscription every month now just for their internet and for, you know, America Online or whatever it is, or CompuServe or their dial-up ISP or however they're getting to the internet. And they're paying for the phone line itself. Is this, is this going to be too much? Are people going to be willing to do this? In the end, yeah, I remember that being a, be, being a real, like, paradigm shift, too. Yep. It's, 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 on the consumer end, it was like, wait subscription but I, I bought the game and that's really when the internet became alive right it's when we moved from well mostly using uh, bulletin boards and usenet like things and then we moved into actual real internet let's right? talk about what people were doing in those days with their online life okay because and and let's bring up pornography for a moment <laughs> you're going yeah, because lo yeah, loading screens on modems porn was different back then there was no there were no digital cameras. You didn't, you didn't, you couldn't just take a picture of a naked person and put it on the internet. You Are you going to go with ASCII porn? Hang on. And you could, there were no, there was no, um, sites you could go to, to watch movies. No. What the, the, the big place you got porn was paper printed magazines sold at a nearby store that, you know, or, or sold through a subscription through the mail that came in a brown wrapper. So you couldn't tell that was porn, but the mailman knew by the way, and knew you were a pervert. And, um, and then people eventually got the ability to digitize pictures out of the printed magazines and, and make, put them on the, on FTP sites on the internet where you could go and download them. And, and they were the, you know, totally stolen, whatever. Totally uh, low res. And totally low res. It took forever to download. And anytime someone put them up on a site, the the word would get around and people would go there and copy it and build collections on their hard drive of uh, pornographic images. And they, and they weren't usually too picky about what they got because that was all you could get. And uh, uh, And that site would eventually get taken down because it would just be too much traffic for the ISP to handle. And, and in those days, the rule was you can't, yeah, you can't really do commercial, purely commercial things on the internet. And I think part of the reason was because internet leadership was afraid of what the traffic would do if they allowed it because they saw what happened with porn. Anyway. So well, it's, it, it's, it's the big, big driver of technology. We know that we've seen that so many times now. <clears throat> Once the porn industry starts hitting something, that's when you're going to get the actual introduction of the next level of technology. It's also what we see now with virtual reality and, and related topics, right? And 3D and all those things. Porn will make it happen. Yep. One of the one of the best yet most accurate bits in any movie is in Tropic Thunder. One of the guys is explaining why Blu-ray is the new format, and it's because of porn and gamers. And he's not wrong. Yeah, and, and like we talked about in chat, right, the, the, the Usenet uh, porn and then later the IRC porn 
is pretty much what drives this. And it, it, it also then ties into the whole piracy scene, all that stuff. But, but the interesting part is that that was when all us nerds started really heavily using the internet. I'll speak for yourself. I don't well, I was not only referring to the yeah. porn, sorry. <laughs> nah, he was just meaning the porn. Don't let him lie to you. Oh, you're muted, Carneros. Oops, sorry. Pushing the wrong button. Okay, so we're gonna we'll push forward a little bit because I, I don't know I, I don't know where I am in time and things, but uh, the I, I internet is starting to get so. to the Thanks, Arandis. It's appreciated. Uh, so um, <laughs> um, uh, the World Wide Web is starting to become popular now. Uh, it's people are making websites. Uh, they are there are things that you can go and look at. People stop using Usenet and start going to websites for what they're seeing. They start to be able to buy things on the internet. But what you would do is you'd see a listing and then you'd have to like mail a check to the person and they would mail the item back to you. It was crazy in those days and. And we get the first uh, crawlers, right? Uh, the first, uh, first crawlers, search yeah. engines. That would go through and crawl it and make a search engine. And search engines helped a lot. Uh, and then um, uh, when 3DO um, has a uh, kind of collapses and has a big uh, layoff, let's go half the company for the first time. It's a big layoff. And I get laid off and one of my friends does too. And he goes to a new startup, which becomes PayPal. And uh, that ended up doing really well for him. And, um, uh, you know, being able to make a payment online without mailing a check to someone, huge advantage, credit card processing and secure thing. That was huge. Yeah. A lot of things, a lot of developments happening. You can now do direct commercial over the internet. You're allowed to do that. That was nice. Um, uh, things are developing, but people are still mostly dial up and how this stuff works. In 1995, we saw Meridian 59 launch. In 96, we saw Ultima on online launch. And then we get the term massively multiplayer online role-playing game. And everyone giggled at the name at first and thought they were crazy. And then it stuck. That's what, that's what we had and it stuck. Do you remember about... exactly when we got the first PlayStation? Because we're about to move into that era, right? When we start it getting was a little bit earlier. It was early, early because we were competing with 3DO. So I'm going to say it was 94 or, or 90, 94, 95. About the same time Meridian 59 came out. Um, also, 96 was the first year. This is going to sound crazy to a European. It was the first time in my life I took a week off of work to play an MMO, to just stay home and play an MMO, because that's what I really wanted to do with my vacation. I played Meridian 59. Had a max level character. Loved it. I might have cheated a little bit. These are, these, these are days when the server, by the way, was just sitting, the server was just sitting in a room. There was no security. There was, you know, I knew where the room was. Um, they showed me how to restart it because I lived fairly near the office and uh, on weekends uh, when it crashed, I would be one of the people playing and I'd get in the car and drive over and restart the machine and get going and come back home. It's crazy days. Later, we put like a lock on the door and, and then uh, like a handprint reader thingy and it got all James Bond, but 
Um, and, you know, and then, then it moved to a special facility and with air conditioning and security, and then it went to offsite and things got, you know, serious later. I think what, what I remember from that day, uh, era was that games were getting really good, especially on the consoles. And then it was the early days of PC master race and we were gaming like crazy and, and swapping games and all of those things. But, but what then happens, which is just around the corner is that then the online gaming kicks off. And then even though it might not have been that good, it just drew us in there and we Pretty much, we didn't stop playing games on the consoles or on our new PCs, but we were so much more into trying to find the, the, the online gaming community and start creating and building our communities. And we got heavy into things like uh, proper IRC uh, channel usage and all that. And then you're in what, 96, 97, and then you get Ultima Online, right? 96 Ultima Online comes out and it raised the popular, it was, it, it was a big step. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't a hugely big step up from Radiant 59, but it had a lot more content and a little bit more fidelity. And it just raised the profile a lot of it. It became, it really started to put the genre on the map, uh, so to speak. And it named it, so that helped too. Yeah, it was like the dream game for all the former mentioned pen and paper and, and, and mud players, right? This was the game that they had been waiting for. And it got a space to enjoy its its uh, room. I mean, Meridian 59 still was being played, but it was sort of tops for a couple years. Um, nothing came out in 97, really. 98 came out uh, Lineage, but Lineage was over in Korea and Taiwan and Asia. And it wasn't, it didn't become famous in America until later. 99 is when EverQuest came. And then EverQuest brought it up another order of magnitude above Ultima and got really, really hot. And, and, you, and you need to, to cover the, the, the difference, right? Because this is kind of where we're going to go later when we are planning on getting Nerd Slayer to come on and talk about uh, uh, death of games uh, and the whole MMO thing. But, but we have this difference between a PvP-centric game like Ultima Online and then EverQuest, that is basically the first not PvP MMO, right? So, so you have these two genres already finding their beat. Yeah, it, they they had very they were in development, partly overlapping, uh, and they had different philosophies entirely. And not you know they didn't. Um, uh, yeah, EverQuest was PVE, uh, and it, it was a little bit more. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't know. Think about Dungeons and Dragons, where the dungeon master puts a challenge and, a, and creates something and puts it in front of the players to go and and try. They their version, um, the EQ team's version of trying to simulate that in a game, was their version of quests. And then they they put you know bigger challenges in and put in. Uh, raids. The first, you know, a lot of things were were pioneered in 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 EverQuest. Raiding, camping, um, training, where you uh, training a mob, um, a monster is to get aggro on it and then run through to another area to drag that monster with you to go cause problems somewhere else. Toot toot. 
yeah. at, at that, that time. Was the first usage of that, right? Where, where you even got later, you got an emote for that whole phenomenon of train uh, pulling. Where it was, and again, that's why I wanted to bring it up because these things, you start getting the culture of online gaming developing. Mm. You get, you would call it griefing, right? Because things like training is a little bit a griefing uh, method because you would sometimes abusing it and again you get the same things in in ultimate online where the way that people are behaving is mm, pretty much what becomes the eve experience right you didn't have pvp in everquest so you can't just run up and hit them like you could in marine 59 or or ultima what you had to do is you had to like train uh evil monster over to them who could hit them and then try to get them to you know change their mind and attack their juicy friend right here anyway um uh also that came out in around that time uh was asheron's call a little after everquest and then came runescape and uh uh and then and then the first science fiction one um anarchy online and that was famous because their whole launch was a train wreck it was famously famously train wreck the damn thing did not work for like a month and people were complaining and it was on the press and and for the first time you didn't have to it wasn't like you'd read about this stuff in a printed magazine three months later now you could read about it online and and you know very quickly they just had to publish a website and people could all bitch about how poorly this game worked they got they got it working later but it was a really really rough um, uh, launch and people talked about how bad that launch was for years. You want to cover the uh, kind of the development of the first communities a little bit because it's also interesting to see how you get this uh, things that, that we take for granted now, like uh, guilds or uh, things like that. And and it's a, you got them in Ultimate Online already, where people would start grouping and creating small communities. And I think some of the first groups also had their own websites, yeah. things like that, right? Well, not websites for a while, but but uh, not immediately, but not too long after. I remember in Meridian 59, a group of people came up to me and said, can you keep a secret? Do you want to hear about something, but it commits you to keeping a secret? about it okay yes do you want to be a vampire you can be a vampire in this game i i helped make this game i what do you mean i didn't say that part out loud but because I, I i wasn't telling them i was dev and uh, um yeah you can be a vampire and they took me at late at night to the to this one like cathedral and we had a, we had a, like a role-played fake ceremony in there and, and they made me into a vampire and we, it was all pretend in RP and I'm like, what? And it was like, yeah, there were crazy, people would do groups like that and then they would all RP from then on that they were vampires. So the, the Mitanni would have loved it. Yeah, and, and now you're hitting uh, the era. We lost your sound, Caleb. Dude, Caleb, check your check yourself. Sorry, uh, much better. Uh, you're back. 
okay, the, the, the thing I wanted to touch on is now you're, you're moving into uh, the early 2000s, like uh, 2001 2. So what, what's happening, in, if I remember correctly, is that LARPing gets really popular. And what you then have in the background is, of course, that CCP is actually getting established, right? Yeah, although I, I wasn't um, I wasn't watching that as much, um, you know, LARPing in my mind was not connected with online games. It was still part of like more like the D&D world. I would I would go I would attend Gen Con um, and I would see people doing LARPing there and uh, very occasionally, you know, go over and watch what they're doing and, and stuff. The, I, think, I think it's about when White Wolf gets really popular, right? Yeah. And the, they would have sessions at Gen Con and explain its storytelling uh, form of tabletop gaming. We'd be like, oh, that's legit. Okay. And then we'd go back and play D&D. &D or sometimes later, a little bit later, we'd play magic cards and stuff. But uh, um, I, I feel like we're spending a lot of time back there. We're starting to get now into time where... You can actually, instead of dial-up, you can connect to the internet permanently and connect uh, with, a connect with a connection. I remember the first time I signed up for that, they still gave us this adapter thing that was, that was I'm like, you still need a modem for this? And they're like, yeah, you still need it. So I plugged in and plugged into the wall. It was, but it was a lot better. Because at the uh, tail end of this uh, is pretty much when, uh, now I'm, I'm speeding us up a little bit, but uh, we will, as Arinda said, White Wolf was, was huge in uh, 99 to 2001, and, and it peaked around 2000. But we get into 2002 and three, right? In the end of, I think it's 2002, you actually start the, uh, opening up for alpha access to EVE Online. And a little, little before that, I want to bring up... Um... You know, there were other, some other games that were big. Dark Age of Camelot, Final Fantasy XI, uh, Ragnarok Online was was big in some parts of the world. Um, and then Earth and Beyond. Um, I want to yeah, mention that's an Earth important and Beyond. One. It's very important, important because that's the one that basically feeds Eve, right? Uh, that feeds a lot of the early uh, people. If you've listened or watched or read, I'm sorry, Andrew Groen's book, Empires of Eve, A History of the Great Wars of Eve, um, that some of the early folks that came over literally moved their their guilds uh, and groups from Earth and Beyond into Eve Online. Yeah, my actually group was an Earth and Beyond group. So important to know. That was like, you know, the second big meaningful sci-fi game. Anyway. Then and then Asheron's Call Two came out, which was kind of like the first time a sequel in an MMO kind of came out. Then two thousand three was a big year. Um, EverQuest made a sequel-ish type thing, a little bit of spinoff on the side in two thousand three, which was called EverQuest Online Adventures on the PlayStation Two. So that one they went to another platform. Is what they did, they couldn't really make EQ on PlayStation Two. So they made something relevant and flavorful alongside it. I'm trying to remember if there was some kind of hook to where you could get credit for stuff you were doing in EverQuest Online Adventures back in EverQuest based on farming in it. It was I'm remembering something, some kind of hook or points or some sort, but I can't remember 
how it worked was too long ago and my brain is fried. By the way, next week, next week, the 16th, I believe, is the 19th anniversary of the launch of EverQuest. It's still going. Ultima is still going, for that matter. Ultima is the, the oldest of the MMO category that I think is still operating. Yeah. And EverQuest I, is doing well. It's making money. Wow, that's amazing. It's I remember when Asheron's call shut down, right? Yeah, for those of you who don't know, my job title is Senior, senior Producer um, EverQuest Franchise. And I work on the EverQuest games at Daybreak Game Company. I did not I, know that Daybreak owned that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And in the past, I, I worked at CCP. I worked at Hudson Soft. I worked at um, Infogrom and 3DO. Actually, I worked at IDOS. Um, yeah, a few years later, 2008, I launched a, a game called Age of Conan. Let's see. Maybe you remember it from the picture. Age of Conan. Um, did really well. Um, uh, uh, initially, and then um, subscriptions didn't uh, didn't hold up too well. Oh, if you're going to show that, I'm going to have to one up you with the first edition of I, Eve. I, think I couldn't grab my EQ box, but I grabbed an EQ two box. Uh, I don't I don't know where anything is right now. Age of Conan. Probably Here's a tricky one. If, Here's a no. Well, yeah, I don't want to go forward more modern too much gender of dong sliders. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, um, so 2003, EverQuest Online Adventures, Shadow Bane, Maple Story, Eve Online, Toontown Online, Second Life, Star Wars Galaxies, Lineage Two. It's an explosion, games. right? In in like one or two years, you just get all of it coming out. Yep, exactly. And in 2004, the next year, City of Heroes, EverQuest 2, World of Warcraft, boom. It's a lot. So 2003-2004 was the really the big explosion. Um, that was, those were a good time to be alive. It's a bad time to be going through college. I don't know how people. I mean, if they had had this crap when I was in college, I would have been so screwed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I don't know how people. I don't know. Yeah, I got I got pretty addicted at the Meridian fifty nine level. I told you it took a week off from work. The I was PTO capped, which is going to seem strange to a European. You would probably think Americans get so little vacation time at work. Why would they not use it? But there are so many Americans that have used, they have stored up all of their vacation, and not taken it until the company has capped it and they don't accrue any new vacation time until they go and use the old one, but they haven't used any of it. So they're just capped and not accruing anymore. PTO capped. Is that not like the worst idea to a European? Oh, indeed. Yeah, so we, uh, yeah. So a lot of Americans were PTO capped. So I was at the time. So I took a week off and just played. Use it or lose it, right? Back when paid yeah. time off would roll over. Anyway, good days. Um, EQ, uh, EQ, yeah, 2003. 2004, World of Warcraft sets a new quality bar for it and uh, redefines it 
re redefines the game to be more approachable and is very, very successful with that. Initially, they did not, uh, there were a lot of things they didn't expect. Mind you, those guys building um, World of Warcraft were mostly guys playing EverQuest 1 and, um, and were hardcore raiders and in some of the top guilds. Uh, and they, and some of the, some of the top guilds, like huge, whole chunks of guild management rolled right over into Blizzard and went to work on World of Warcraft and, and built that. It's cool stuff. Great story. And, and a funny thing that also starts around here is that all the players in, in EVE Online, it's still low numbers, but pretty much all of them also start playing World of Warcraft and EverQuest 2. And you already start getting this split of which game are you actually playing as the second game from EVE? I don't know if you can make that link available to our viewers in some way. Uh, but you can also um, do a search on YouTube for a documentary called Evercracked that goes back and tells the story of EverQuest. It's, 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 great, it's great content and humorous. And, uh, and it has interviews with some folks from those days talking about what the experience was like. And some of them, they're talking in a hall at Blizzard about what it was like playing EverQuest and how, how they made the transition from EQ to Blizzard. Oh, and we did actually miss a point in uh, the What's history that? lesson. We, we missed the point of Elite and Frontier Elite which was huge uh, games in the gaming yes. industry. And it was the, the key thing that inspired EVE Online to do what they did. And many had already talked about wanting to try something like that, but no one had actually done it. And these crazy Icelandic uh, people just went ahead and then suddenly launched this thing that a lot of uh, Frontier Elite players has actually been hoping for. Yeah, no, EVE Online was uh, CCP. Um, in some of these early days was, first of all, they were located at a, another building uh, just off, if you know downtown Reykjavik, it was just off the main drag called Loyavegr. And it was on, um, I think it was on Kalaparstigur, I think was the name of the street. And it was a little, it's, it's um, the building is still there and they had um, a section in it and across the street was a bar and um, in those days, they had keys to the bar for if they had to go over early and have like a meeting or, or a little a little time, you know, outside of bar hours to just sit down and, and kibitz a little bit about think about what they're doing. The guys worked really long hours. They were young. They were um, they you know if you they just fell asleep under their desk if they had to, but they just worked really hard to make this happen. It was a labor of love. It did not, ex I don't think they expected it to blow up like it did. Um, Young, and hungry, and a little bit crazy, right? Hungry and crazy and occasionally drunk. <laughs> of course, <laughs> a lot drunk. To oh, and on the topic of drunk, it's the same time that the first Eve events and Eve meets actually starts out. You get the first Eve London, you get the first uh, Copenhagen Gangathon, and then eventually you get the first fan fest. And we lost your sound again, Caleb. I thought he stopped. I thought he kept 
talking. Maybe I don't. No, know. no, no. I stopped. <laughs> okay. okay. You know what? I was looking in the wrong window. I'm looking in the uh, in the post feeds. So you were still talking. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, I'll scroll forward a little bit more. One of the games I worked on at um, at um, let's see, we'll do a little test here. We'll see who knows the connection between these two games that I worked on. And and okay, we're we're I'm not allowed to up. say it's in the I'm audience. Up Heroes of Might and Magic from New <clears> World <throat> Computing, and I'm holding up Rift from Trial Worlds. Let's see if you know the thanks, Trino. So New World Computing was a little game company famous for an RPG called Might and Magic and a related turn-based strategy game in the same setting, fantasy setting, called Heroes of Might and Magic. When, um, when, when 3DO eventually went into bankruptcy uh, and, um, and John Van Kenningham, JVC, from New World Computing could run off on his own and do... Um, his next game he wanted to do an mmo because those were hot in those days and he you know he wanted to be part of it he he was enjoying it he thought he could make one and he started working on one and it was called heroes of talara talara was the name of the world where might and magic was, was set and he's building you know yet another fantasy mmorpg at a time when they're all coming out and um, Heroes of Talara didn't have a lot of brand recognition. And I, I said, no, you guys, that name's not really going to work. Uh, and they ended up hiring me on a contract uh, to help out on the marketing folks. And I did focus group testing, and I came up with um, um, this new name for them and renamed it to Rift. Uh, and... Uh, I think it's a lot better. Short is good. Uh, and um, and then uh, just after that happened, 3D offered me a job to go move, not 3D, CCP offered me a job to move out to Atlanta. And, uh, and uh, try on counter offered, but I was too excited about the CCP offer. Went out there, joined them. This is also the era of uh, what you would call the wow killers, right? Everyone is trying to compete with that growing juggernaut that wow is there there was you know the rumor on on the in in the industry was wow at its peak was bringing in 100 million dollars a month 100 million dollars a month think about that for a moment that's a lot it's bonkers at that point right i mean you could you can mess up a lot of people for 100 million dollars a month just to compare, how was EQ2 actually doing? Because they were not in the same range, but they were doing pretty well, weren't they? I didn't come and join the EQ, the EverQuest team until after um, CCP. So I've never pulled old data for those days. Um, I mean, there's some stories we tell about internally about when we hit 100,000 concurrent users in EverQuest and how everything broke. Um, and and how our minds got blown and people got all crazy and that was when you had to actually look down on the ground when you were moving around in EQ. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of things that weren't working because they weren't designed to work at that scale. No one understood. 
no one on that team understood that scale. And that was the shock, right? The, the whole migration of online players that was just going nuts. And, and no likewise, one had expected World of Warcraft was freaking out when it got too successful too, because they were, they were trying to make everything work and trying to spin up new servers and people would wait in a queue to get on and they'd wait for hours, hours on popular days to get in. And then the experience was not good. And God forbid you should do something in game that made everyone go to the same location because then you crash your server. And it, I, I suspect that a lot of that was actually also what was feeding EVE Online so much in the early days. The fact that you had this massive population that was moving into all these titles that Carneros is mentioning. And when they started getting a little bit disgruntled or they reached end level or whatever, they started then trickling into EVE Online and they became the early players. And I think we've also hit the point where Falcon gets hired by CCP. I don't remember when Falcon joined. Well, because he, he was a player before that. And then he just was. after him came Soundwave, just to, just to do a bit of name dropping of the devs, because of course, in, in the pre uh, warm up of the show, you mentioned uh, some of the early devs like uh, Richard Nathanson over and Torfi France and a lot of the names that we've now lost, but uh, it's the early days of Eve and where things are really building and becoming what it yeah. is today. And it's when Mitani started playing. Those were, yeah, those were good. I, I wasn't in Eve at that time. That's when I was launching Age of Conan. That's when um, uh, I was working on some non-MMO games also. But then, um, yeah, we'll go, we'll skip forward. I joined CCP. Um, just as Dominion is shipping. My first day on the job, what my first meeting I went to was a post-mortem on the launch of Dominion and what did we learn? And that was a very interesting meeting. Uh, and then, uh, and I, so I worked on Tyrannus, if you know the names of these old expansions, EVE Online Tyrannus, and then Incursion, and then Incarna. Oh, shots fired. I know, I know. And then um, Crucible. Yeah, it was the big one, right? It was the ambitious one. All the big ambitious uh, patches were the ones you just mentioned. And I had, uh, by the time we got to Incarna, I had three roles. I was senior direct, my official title was senior director global sales. Um, and uh, I was in charge of selling the product in and things like Plex, uh, and uh, electronic time codes and uh, that kind of stuff. But and my in-game name, uh, my dev name was CCP Zinfandel. But um, in addition to that, CCP Darth Beta had gone on maternity leave and they needed someone to cover for, for marketing for EVE Online. So they said, could you move to Iceland for like three to six months? And uh, it ended up being like 15 months, but it was good. It was a good experience. Um, Cause when Darth Beta came back, she said, can you stay here too? And we'll both do this because it's too much, you know, they've got me doing this other thing now too. And it's too much to cover all of it for one person. And, and I go, sure, sure. So I, I stayed there for a while. I think you should uh, delve a little bit into, uh, no pun intended, but uh, into the whole Plex thing, because that was a game changer for the game industry, right? Because all right, all right. We'll back up. I don't want to get that yet. And then there's a third role I'm doing, which is they put me on Team Stonehenge 
and they put me in charge of um, new monetization. So we had a big meeting. We had, first of all, we had a we pulled a group together of like thirty people across the company. We gave them a big stack of uh, current thinking on monetization that we all read through, and then we had like a two day offsite in a set of meeting rooms over a Danish restaurant downtown. And we just all hold up in there all day and we talked about monetization and what we could do. The world's changing. These games are going free to play. People are selling objects and items in game. We don't know anything about this. All we know is this dying model of subscription gaming and everyone's saying subscription is going away. As soon as WoW drops it, we're gonna be the only ones doing it. We're gonna look really dumb. And what are we gonna do? We have to learn, we have to learn what, what this world is. Let's just learn. So we had a two-day meeting, maybe it was three days. And at the end of it, Hilmar says, all right, Rick, you're in charge. You're going to be, we have to put someone in charge. It'll be you. Go and make this happen. And they put me on one of the dev teams. The EVE Online dev team was split up into smaller teams. And we were doing um, uh, agile development together as teams. And I joined Team Stonehenge. Um, famous people on Team Stonehenge today. Well, famous people I was on the team with right now, CCP Karkur, that you remember from Little Things. She's wonderful, by the way. Amazing, though. Uh, anyway, um, so we made the first in-game store that was called the, um, the, the NEX, and it stood for... Um, New Eden New Exchange. Exchange. Is that what it was? New Eden Exchange. Sure. Okay. That's uh, Yeah. And we sold ship skins and uh, and not a lot else. A little bit of clothing in it. Uh, and uh, we anyway. So so I had three roles in those days. I was I was trying to do all kinds of stuff in it. Um, we'll skip we'll skip how Incarna launched. That's been talked about a lot. Planets. Yeah, but it, it was interesting that that you had that experience. You were exactly at the spot when all of these things, so much novelty in the gaming industry in general, and then that big uh, summer of rage event. So, so you had a ton of firsthand experience with all these things. That's and why started. I wanted you. Yeah, it, it's kind of why I wanted you to touch a little bit about the novelty of Plex because that was a novel solution to a an industry problem, and it took a long time before anyone else started using it. Well, we were we were conscious. I w I didn't. I wasn't there for the invention of Plex. I took over Plex as part of my responsibility afterwards, and we modified it from there. We added larger Plex packages because people weren't just buying five of them. We went all the way up to. Um, we well, we looked at our um, credit card processing agreements with our credit card processors and the. The maximum transaction size we were allowed to do in our contracts was 500 euros or $500. So we made a 24 pack. I think it was 24 pack. Yeah, just on the limit, biggest, right? Or 26 pack or something. That was the biggest size chunk we could do that was still likely, even with currencies going up and down, to stay underneath the transaction limit. And I think if I'm not mistaken, this ties into uh, financial law, actually, uh, that it had to do with international transaction size uh, that, that would need to get flagged. That wasn't part of our discussion, but it might have been true also. 
then we yeah, have it's the credit card uh, things. They were not allowed to do bigger transactions than that, and there was a few rules that they were following. And this has been raised for the following years, which is kind of funny. Uh, then we, um, uh, and at the same time, we're talking about World of Warcraft. I'm having meetings on World of Warcraft too, because I'm um, not World of Warcraft. Sorry, World of Darkness. Completely different. Um, World of Darkness is still in development. Um, I'm um, participating in, in some of that. We're, we had uh, an equivalent to Plex, but separate, completely separate system. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say, but we had a, comp we had a different metaphor for what we were going to do. Instead of pilot license extensions, we had a completely different metaphor, but it worked very similarly. Was it how much Cthulhu um, your brain could handle, essentially? No, it was actually, it was, it was cooler than that. It was pretty cool. Um, and it, we had a, uh, they, in addition to being able to buy them, there was a way in which they could spawn in limited quantity in game. And I borrowed that idea, uh, mind you, because after I left CCP, the first place I actually went was 38 studios. And I worked on Kingdoms of Amalur. And that, um, in that one, I, you know, I, uh, I designed a Plex follow-up that um, was sort of partly based on um, World of Warcraft's rare spawning herb in the vanilla WoW called the Black Lotus. Or was it the Black Lotus? It was uh, Black Lotus. Yeah, you needed them to do the high-end rating flasks, and that was a, a big deal. People need Black Lotuses. And then, um, and it was partly based on Plex and partly based on the thing from World of Darkness. So they, they again, they, they, they would could spawn rarely in the world around you as an herb, and you could pick them, or you could buy them in the store, and you could consume them for a month of game time. And it was, it was built the same thing. Uh, we didn't get it all the way built, but we designed the same thing for uh, Kingdoms of Amalur. Then when Thirty Eight Studios went under. I went to Sony, and the first thing I did at Sony Online Entertainment was I made Chrono, which is their version of Plex. We put it into EverQuest and EverQuest 2, and you could move back and the, Ever, the Chrono could go back and forth between the two games. It's the only one on the market that would work in multiple games. That's kind of interesting, right? Because yeah. that would have been pretty much where CCP would have gone or should and have gone. And then there was a day that um, uh, we'll, that Blizzard called John Smedley and said, tell us about this chrono thing that you're doing. And he said, oh, you should talk to Rick. Um, and they said, can you come up for a day? I go, yeah. And they said, yeah, 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 yeah. So we booked a day and I drove from San Diego to Orange County because Blizzard's only like an hour and 20 minutes away from uh, Sony slash Daybreak went up there. We had all day meetings, you know, and they, they, uh, made a, a beautiful lunch for us in the boardroom. We sat and I presented, here's how these things work. Here's how Plex works. Here's how Chrono works. Here's how, here's other companies that are doing it too. Here are the levers that you can pull. Here are the trouble areas that you want to stay away from. Here are the, uh, fraud hot points that you need to be aware of. And here was all this stuff. And I laid it all out for them. 
and I went away, and a few months later they came out with uh, WoW tokens. And then the next uh, the next BlizzCon that I went to, they bought me drinks at the bar at the Hilton to say thank you and uh, thank you for all my help. Oh, and and the WoW tokens. And if I'm not mistaken, all of the ones, the examples of copying the Plex concept, none of them have taken the player tradeability uh, with it in the same way. It's not, th these uh, tokens are not linked into the economy directly in the same way that uh, the they are. In, they are in the EverQuest franchise. They are. Um, and, and here's one of the ways in which that emerged. Whenever we, after Chrono came out, whenever we would launch a new start over from scratch retro server and say, okay, here's a new time locked expansion server. We're going to start at vanilla and we're going to unlock each expansion slowly over time. And uh, you can play the original experience like you remember it. And in those days when they first got to raiding, because the economy wasn't developed enough and there wasn't enough currency yet farmed in the economy, the first raid drops were worth too much compared to all of the gold and platinum available in the game on that server. And that server was locked off from all the rest of uh, EverQuest or EverQuest 2. So what they did was they bought Chrono and they made Chrono be the currency with which they would uh, trade to negotiate for who got a, a, a valuable raid drop. So it'd be, it, and that's how, yeah, I copy Eric. Uh, so that's how, you know, it be, it became, you know, just like, imagine if there wasn't enough wealth in EVE to, to handle Moloch BPCs and you had to trade Plex to get a Moloch. And then interestingly enough, you also worked on, uh, the virtual, uh, assets, uh, store, uh, in EQ, right? Because you then kind of, uh, took again, some of the experience. How do you have that? Well, I think it's something you mentioned on a talking in stations right. episode once. Okay. Are you watching me? No, it's because we've uh, had some discussions about the failures of CCP when it comes to actually creating a good monetization model on things like virtual products and also on real products. They've started and relaunched it. What twice now? Started and relaunched what? The, the the physical merchandise store and that oh. whole thing. Oh no no oh that oh that's uh, uh you're talking about something different okay sorry. Oh but I'm Did seeing you... them as tied right because you get them almost at the same time when they're trying to move into those things at least from CCP's side you get the the merchandise uh, first version about the same time as the next store. Don't and trick then it me, fails. That's not fair. I'm no no but. Uh, the, the thing is that uh, we've been waiting for good merchandise and we've gotten these things like uh, Toffee France's Big Dreams, which is also amazing stuff and I would love to buy it, but it's always outside of my price range. Yeah, no, the, star, the store is modernizing now and uh, it's, a, it's a good sign. I, I like to see that they're doing that and they're not just sitting on the old one that I built. They're updating it and improving it and um, updating the product offerings, and that's very smart. It's good. They need to. Yeah, and the reason that uh, I wanted to ask you about the, the thing in, in EQ2 is because they've basically done what 
a lot of EVE players have been asking for for a long time, things like licensing and how to bring in the, the player base into your uh, virtual assets. Um, and when I played EQ2, I've been doing that on and off. One of the most amazing things was that store and the whole thing when they uh, developed that and, and it's actually the players creating the content, right? Okay, yeah, there's, there's the players creating content is worth talking about for a moment. Uh, Steam Workshop um, was a big pioneer on this. Um, the second thing I did at Sony when I got there was, was create Player Studio. So what players could do is they could design an item in-game, uh, design the art for it, upload that art to our servers. Our dev team would look at it, pick the ones they liked, finish the rest of the item, put it into the game, put it into the store in the game, sell that, and then share 40% of the earnings back to the player who made the art. That was used a lot in like Planetside 2, right? If, I'm, if I know. We put it in Planetside 2, EverQuest, EverQuest 2, Free Realms, which is gone now. Rest in peace. And we put it in and, uh, and Landmark, which is gone now. Just, to, just to, uh, out of curiosity, because I can't actually remember when it came out, but things like Alliance logos and that whole procedure of getting them into the game, isn't that actually just before all of this starts out? In, C in, in EVE, I mean. A little later, because I went to the uh, CCP attorneys and I said, do you want to borrow the license lo language that we put into Player Studio to use for doing the... Uh, Alliance logos, and I sent them all a copy of. I sent them a copy of it, and they looked at it, and then they, but they, they kind of. I'm not going to say NIH not invented here, but I'm going to say they, they have, and ended up going something that they felt more confident and a little bit more conservative with. Although I have to say, Sony is a pretty conservative organization, uh, and um, and did a lot of work on that with a lot of attorneys all over the world. It, it's just interestingly enough, in, in my opinion, is that many of these, what I've called like the best mod, uh, modern, modern monetization schemes, they're kind of being left behind uh, now. And, and now they're moving into these, I don't know what you want to call it, but things like loot boxes and stuff like that. And it's like, why are they not focusing on the, the these other models that actually have some value to the players and aren't just, I don't know, cash, uh, pump and dump. It's hard. It's a lot of work to do. It's, and it's a, it's not consistent and predictable. Um, yeah, you, you have to put in a fair number of player made items to get before you can make sure you're covering all the ones that are actually going to be successful. Um, it's, yeah. It's tough to streamline the process, yeah. right? But but this is about tying uh, the whole uh, modding scene and uh, the, the the player uh, creativity and third partying into this and this whole discussion because that's uh, something that's pretty old in the gaming industry, but it's really maturing now. It's reaching a, a peak point where it's so almost competitive with the actual developers, right? Well, it's 
it, no, it's it's not competitive with the developers. The developers can do more and have a lot of tricks, but and uh, but the, you know honestly, some of the most uh, uh, successful of the player made ones, they're not just players. They're oh, you dropped. They're back. actually sorry, I got interrupted. They're actually devs from other game companies moonlighting and doing some of this stuff on the side. So what's a player and what's a dev at that point? Jeez. But, uh, yeah, it, it starts being gray, right? Uh, just to mention the example that might be relevant, uh, Fox 4 moved from uh, uh, EVE Online and started playing uh, Albion that launched recently. And uh, an interesting fact is that he then started a player uh, project uh, scraping data from the market, which is pretty much historically what Eve was first doing, right? Yep. And relevant now, that brought up all the things with the thing we mentioned in the beginning with releasing data of the market. And we had uh, the, we have the Eve Mon, uh, pro Monitor project uh, that's just being uh, shelved. Again, all these uh, third party things. And, and I think important fact is that Early days, all the third parting was always individuals, right? No one has has actually done the group uh, way of doing that in uh, in the third parting. We're running out of time here. Yeah, uh, a couple of people wanted to talk about the future of MMOs, but I don't know how we're going to do it on this show. We might have to do a separate one. We, we will, and we can, we can do it. I mean, we can even bring it in next week if we want to. So that'd be cool. That'd be very cool. Um, I did want to confirm for a couple people that the Meta Show is going to be up next here. We're going to break here in about five minutes after this show. Um, Boat is back, so if you've been missing Boat on the Meta Show, he is going to be here. So that's going to be fun. So we'll see what he's been up to for the last couple months. I've missed that laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've missed the boat in general. Like... I think he did four, almost five hours of streaming yesterday. Uh, on CCP stream and then later on INN. So he's definitely back. And I heard some rumors that he's been running some fleets and tuning a lot. Well, we'll see how that goes, but he is definitely back on the Meta Show, and the Meta Show is up today, even though they skipped last week because of uh, Ice Swarm. Uh, so, yeah. So, yes, Carniros, thank you very much for a, for a great show. Uh, uh, it's pleasure. always a pleasure. And I think this is the first time we've talked since E Vegas, so that's even nicer. So. It was good. Um, I think we're going to have to insist on bringing him back for episode two and the follow-up. Absolutely. And, and um, Noisy Gamer asked about you bring somebody you mentioned bringing on. And could you go over that real quick, Caleb? Oh, it's just that uh, what inspired me to actually do this and, and get Connors on, on the show uh, is that I've been uh, doing the whole looking for other MMOs to try out and... When I did that, I started stumbling upon uh, Nerd Slayer that's been doing these uh, the Death of Games uh, series where, that most people actually know. Um, at least many MMO players know it, uh, and it's very popular. And I asked, uh, I reached out and asked him if he wouldn't mind coming on and talking about Eve because he told uh, everyone that the unique game that uh, is outside of uh, all the other PvP-centric MMOs. It's actually EVE Online. It's it's kind of outside of his normal category. And he's been trying to do something related to EVE for a long time, but he can't really get into it because there's so much work to do if you want to actually analyze EVE Online compared to any other game, right? It's 15 years of history. That's true. So, hey, we'll have you back again, Carneros. Thank you, uh, Uranus, and everybody else. 
Uh, Arendis popped in for a little bit, so thank you for joining the show. Everybody is always welcome. Um, and we're going to call it quits, and the meta show will be up in about 15 minutes, folks. Thank you, everybody. Everybody say bye. 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 Adios.